Ecologist, can you hear me? Yes. We've uh, heard a bit about your group, and uh, we understand that you want to form some sort of kind of cooperation. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. The base is an accelerationist, paganistic, anarchic group. All right. Well, I'm out here in, in Oregon um, with everything that, that was going on in politics and just, you know, the disappearance of, of, of whites around the world. That's really got me going. Yeah. Are you, um, what's your ethnicity? I'm white. I am part Norwegian, part Sweden and German. They hate Jews and African-Americans. Their goal is to use terrorism to start a race war and collapse the United States. Triggering societal collapse may be a sick fantasy, but the reality is that domestic terror has claimed more lives than international terror since 9-11. Um, all right, so you've been nationalist for three years, you said. What were you before that? Um, I was Republican. They aren't your parents neo-Nazis. A lot of our guys, we have just a pure hatred for the modern civilization and industrialization. We wish to uh, liberate ourselves, our fellow whites, and animals from that system. How does that work? Uh, through economic sabotage, just bombings, arson. Um, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. All right. Let's slow down there a little bit. Sounds Like Hate is a new podcast series from the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm Geraldine Moriba. And I'm Jamila Paxima. This first season is about how some people become extremists and how some of them disengage from a life of hatred. I don't recommend, you know, being kind of so cavalier about that type of thing because um, mm -hmm. you could really land yourself in a lot of trouble. Faceless is the title of this three-part story. This is the voice of an actual neo-Nazi interviewing another neo-Nazi for membership in a group called The Base. These are secret audio recordings made inside their vetting room on wire, an encrypted app. Here's what white supremacists say when they hope no one is listening. I later formed Green Brigade as a reactionary movement to what's going on in the environment. What are the core values of Green Brigade? Direct action is, is a big one. How many members do you have so far? Um, we had 40, but those dropped, and now we're down to about like less than 20. Why did it drop? Because um, when I was talking about forming an alliance with the base, people that were in the base, um, they wanted us to go through, well, all of our members to go through your vetting system. These recordings of the base cover a two-year period starting November 2018. Having a primary source like that, you know, these people actually talking to one another, um, unfiltered and um, unaware, but I think that's extremely valuable. A warning to our listeners, much of what you'll hear will be disturbing. These recordings contain offensive language, exaggerated statements about their own lives, and discussions about the violent collapse of America. In this first part, You'll hear the ways members of the U.S. Armed Forces are being recruited for their combat expertise. Then in part two, using artificial intelligence, we search for the truth buried within the recordings of the base's vetting room. The results reveal a lot about their recruiting tactics, their fear of the FBI, and their covert plots. 
And in part three, we report on how the FBI infiltrated their inner circles only days before a planned armed confrontation to accelerate a race war. We're looking for guys who are willing to accept a degree of risk and you know, believe that what we're trying to do is worth it. There are over 100 people in these secret recordings. We listen to every minute of every one of them. This is the ecologist. He's a 20-year-old living in Oregon. He's being interviewed by the leader of the base and presenting his best case for emission. What's your ethnicity? I'm white. I am part Norwegian, part Sweden and German. Norman Spear and Roman Wolf are the aliases of the leader of this domestic terror group. Um, the reason why I wanted to join the base is I want to fight for my future and for the future of my children and whatnot. He's the one asking the questions on these vetting calls. His real name is Ronaldo Nazaro. What do you know of the base? Uh, I know that you're focused on survival and combat skills. I believe for the uh, political social collapse. You know, I see how you look, you know, military style that you present yourselves as. But um, I don't really know, like, the core values, I guess I would say. Where are you the strongest now? Like, where people, guys are meeting up? The strongest is in the Midwest. Almost all of our guys are there, to be honest. We have a lot there. What about in the Pacific Northwest? Um, Pacific Northwest, there is me and one other. Much of what you hear Nazaro doing on these calls is selling the idea of the base. I mean, I thought we consider ourselves more of a network. We're all open to people who have membership in other organizations. Uh, uh-huh. And the more like-minded guys that we can pull together that have um, that have the motivation to get out there in real life and train, um, you know, that makes us all stronger. Plug them into the network and they can take full advantage of any kind of knowledge or training, or, you know, meetups and networking. We want to be in a position where we're ready, we're prepared enough ready enough that we can take advantage of whatever chaos or um, power vacuum that might emerge. Sure. Most most of us are national socialists, but there are others who just consider themselves white nationalists. Um, So, I mean, being pro-white is the number one criteria. Along with our reporting, investigations from other news outlets, including ProPublica, The Guardian, The New Yorker, BBC, Vice, and others, have uncovered additional facts about Ronaldo Nazaro and the base. Here is what we know. Nazaro is 47 years old. He went to Villanova University and says he served in Afghanistan. He claims to have worked for American intelligence agencies as a contractor, and at one point, he owned a security company registered in New York City. Nazaro avoided law enforcement and media attention until he started posting how-to online videos on guerrilla warfare and building weaponry. It's going to be really tough at that point. Then in late 2017, he began showing up on podcasts and Twitter, talking about the collapse of American society and the need for a white ethno state. I mean, obviously the ideal solution, if we could just kind of wave a magic wand, would be like, yeah, we would be able to take control of the government and just maintain the current boundaries of the United States. Nazaro professed to be a National Socialist or a Nazi and began recruiting people to his side. This was the beginning of the base. It was also around the time when he left the United States 
and moved with his Russian wife and two kids to St. Petersburg, Russia. Jamila, what motivates people to go to the extreme of forming a white power group? I want to know the answer to that question, too. It's why I contacted Cassie Miller. I first saw him kind of have a growing presence on Twitter. She has a PhD in American history and is a senior research analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Ronaldo Desaro, using the name Norman Spear or later Roman Wolf, was appearing on social media, kind of dismissing those ideas entirely, saying that there were no actual political ways to achieve a fascist state that was built on ethno-nationalism. What they needed was revolution, and revolution required violence. I can also talk about how we got his name. He bought land in central Washington, and um, his name was on those documents. And this is the land he bought for $33,000. Right. Where is this land? Um, it's in Republic, Washington. It's in an extremely rural area. It doesn't have any sort of infrastructure. It's actually zoned for agriculture. Um, and from what we know from the recordings that we have is that this was meant to be kind of a place for training, um, and perhaps eventually, you know, a place for people to settle. I own 30 and it's adjacent to 40 of public land. So it's not that big. Nazaro mentions the Pacific Northwest and the acres of property he owns 37 times on these vetting calls. It seems to be part of his recruiting strategy, like he's trying to convince the group he's building a safe haven for escape and training. The idea that Miller says states in the Northwest have been seen by white supremacists as desirable areas of the country for decades, and groups like the base, who are aiming to speed up the race war, are called accelerationists. Um, and with white people eventually becoming a minority in the United States, that they wouldn't actually have a way to achieve the kind of political power that they needed, that the system itself was to blame and that it, it needed to go. And so what the base talks about is bringing about system collapse. They see modern democracies as corrupted and irredeemable, and the only way to move forward is to dismantle them through acts of violence aimed at the state or at groups of individuals that they see as their enemies. Your survival is in a self-defense network. Our mission is very, very simple. It is, um, tr is training and networking, mm -hmm. preparing for collapse. We want to be in a position where we're ready, we're prepared enough, ready enough that we can take advantage of whatever chaos. Yeah. Um, power vacuum that might emerge. You know, we, we, mm -hmm. want to fill, we want to try to fill that power vacuum and take advantage of, of the chaos. I am from California. Uh, I'm currently attending college. This is one of the four recruits the ecologist introduces to the base. I have been National Socialist for probably five years. I have a good amount of friends who are as well. I own a firearm. All right. Do, do you think that the masses can be red-pilled? No. I think the word red-pilled comes from the movie The Matrix. People like of exceptional intelligence can be. I think the masses will come over uh, once we win. 
It's used by the far right to mean an awakening to white power ideology. What was a red pilling moment for you in your life? It was overall just growing up in California. I was surrounded by mostly like Filipinos, Asians, Mexicans, blacks, and just watching how they behave and watching like, I don't know, occasionally like white women intermingle with them. It just disgusted me. Here's another college-age recruit from the Green Brigade, the group the ecologist started. I guess for the most part, it was my best friend and roommate who's part of the base. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, he was Catholic at that time, too, but uh, significantly more racist than I was. Were you sort of like a very devout type of Catholic or what? Yeah, like my family's Catholic. I grew up Catholic. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So what? Um, what made you switch to paganism? Um, pretty much just accepting that Catholicism was not the best thing for our people. I realized that, uh, like, if it came down to it, I choose. I choose my race over my religion, and so. I realized I couldn't really be Catholic anymore. The recruits on these recordings claim to live in 26 different states and participate in small two- or three-person cells in every quadrant of America. An additional eight countries were represented on these calls. Geraldine, the countries with the most recruits include Canada, United Kingdom, and Australia. They want people to believe that this is a highly sophisticated terror network and they have this really strict internal discipline. They have really good OPSEC. Um, but it turns out that very little of this is true. Um, OPSEC is an abbreviation of the words Operation Security. It's military talk for protecting yourself from enemy intelligence. It comes up on almost every recruiting call. They accepted almost everyone. According to Miller, the base has a very high acceptance rate. They were looking for quality over quantity in their ranks, but that didn't actually seems to be the case. There were, you know, oftentimes a lot of red flags that they would just ignore. Uh, through economic sabotage, just bombings, arson. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, all right. Slow down there a little bit. Um. <laughs> That kind of violence that the ecologist is talking about is very much the core strategy that defines the group. What people decide to do outside the base with that training and contacts they make is is their business. Mm-hmm. You know, and we don't really need to know about it. Um, I mean, sure, it's kind of better that we don't for everyone's sake and, and for everyone's success. I think they were kind of constantly nervous about being infiltrated. Um, And it created this really strong sense of paranoia because they were worried that everyone around them was an informant. Basically, the enemy is like circling like vultures, okay, (laughs) overhead constantly. Okay, we are, uh, you know, heavily monitored by the feds, by the media. They're constantly trying to come after, trying to disrupt us, trying to infiltrate. Okay, so maybe you don't want that kind of to be associated with. Uh, a group that has that type of attention on it. If you are as open as, you, as you're being right now about it, I mean, chances are you're going to land yourself in like some pretty deep hot water, I would, I would imagine, at some point. So, um, you know, we've had guys who have had visited from the feds. They have not been arrested, though. And we have guys who, a couple guys at least that we know of, they're under investigation. So we have to operate with that in mind. A lot of times that they found that someone 
was maybe, you know, uh, had some potential, but they were unsure of their commitment. Miller has listened to many of these calls looking for patterns in the vetting process. They would have them go and do something like put up flyers to prove that they were actually committed to the group. She says flyering was mostly an assignment for younger applicants. So he's got like a like a pool of potential recruits like at his doorstep. They were instructed to post flyers around schools or on campus and photograph them on location as proof of mission complete. And they would often have someone go and meet with the person in person to kind of give it another layer of vetting. I spoke to someone who was vetted by Nazaro. It didn't take me long to clue in to what these folks were about. Ryan Thorpe is a Canadian reporter with the Winnipeg Free Press. He says on July 25, 2019, flyers started showing up in his city, including the area around a military base. That would have either one or multiple photos of individuals uh, decked out in military fatigues, wearing the kind of skull mask that I subsequently learned uh, has is associated with uh, kind of neo-Nazi accelerationist circles. Thorpe posed as a white nationalist to gain access inside the base. His vetting process began when he responded to the email address on a flyer. They had slogans like, save your race, join the base, uh, learn, train, fight, organize, kind of taglines. Thorpe had never gone undercover before. They asked for my name. He did a self-taught crash course on the base and their beliefs before filling out their online application, circulating on social media. They asked for my age. They asked for my ethnicity. They asked about my physical condition. They wanted to know if I had firearm training, if I had a military background. By the time I got back into work the next day, I had gotten a response. He communicated for several days by email with Nazaro, who asked him to download the encrypted app Wire. It wasn't until um, I got deeper into the vetting process for potential members that I determined that this individual was going by the name Roman Wolf, uh, which was the pseudonym at the time that the founder was using. Thorpe's next step, a vetting phone call with a group of base members and Nazaro. This is an excerpt from Thorpe's own recording. Officially, the base is pro-life. I mean, that's our primary, um, that's really our primary criteria. I was being put to the test for the first time in this process in kind of a substantive way. I was incredibly nervous going into that phone call. I've been developing this false persona this entire time. About 1 or 2 p.m. the next day, I'm working in the newsroom, and I get a message from the founder, Roman Wolf, who says, you did good last night. I mean, you're going to go to the military, and from the training that you planning on getting, that'll be very valuable. I know that'll come, like, handy down the road when it comes to you know, ballistic type shit, handmade weapons, stuff like that. In the vetting calls, we found three recruits who say they first gained interest in survivalism and weapons as Boy Scouts. How old are you? 19. So I was in Boy Scouts. I made it all the way through that. When you say you you made it all the way through, you mean you were an Eagle Scout? Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, in terms of firearms, uh, I recently purchased one of my own. Uh, I have an AR-15. I've practiced with it for a few weekends. Be prepared is the Scouts' motto. But the Boy Scouts of America tell us there is no place for racism, violence, hate speech, bullying, or harassment of any kind, not in scouting and not in our communities. Still, their cornerstone value suits the base's mission for military preparedness. In fact, nearly 20% of the applicants claim to have combat training, including Nazaro. They served or were active duty servicemen. I go off to deploy in July, and that'll be for 15 months, but then I will be back. There were eight men in the National Guard, one former member of the Air Force, a Marine, and eight in the U.S. Army. Anyone with military background was more desirable to the base. But yeah, I'm a 19 kilo, so I do tank shit. I'm, I basically am you know, an operator of the M1A tank crewman. They were all ideal candidates to lead paramilitary training. Right, but I mean, you know, even when you do deploy, I'm assuming that you'll still be able to maintain contact with us. Uh, through the internet, yes. What's your MOS? 35 Tango, IT for military intelligence. The unit I'm with is a cavalry unit. But yeah, it is a combat arms unit overall. I've actually done a bit of reconnaissance training through the Army itself as well. Land navigation, OPs, stuff like that. I did six months at Fort Benning, <laughs> training up, combat arm style. Uh, I'm sure that can be applied somewhere. I was a uh, squad leader of 17 people. Probably one of the most uh, prophetic things, you know, because like it, it, it shows. It really does. I have leadership skills that I mm -hmm. learned through what the court gave me. First, White supremacist terror groups and communities value military skills that would enable them to commit terrorism or fight a race war. At the House Subcommittee hearing on incidents of white supremacy in the military in early 2020, committee chair and Congresswoman Jackie Speer had a lot to say about the vulnerability of the U.S. Armed Forces. They recruit vets to join and train their members, seek to infiltrate sympathizers into the military, and many members claim to have military experience. This doesn't make white supremacist terror groups unique. Al-Qaeda also recruited members of the Egyptian and Saudi militaries. Second, there are several warning signs that individuals with white nationalist and supremacist tendencies are in fact serving in our military. I'm just curious about this. Are you guys named after Al-Qaeda? <laughs> no. Uh, it's just the base as in base camp. I mean, I don't think anyone who's a member speaks Arabic. Um, so, yeah, well, Al-Qaeda so, is Arabic for the base. Right. It's like reverse engineering the English uh -huh. language into some other language that's kind of silly. They want to paint us to be terrorists. But the Arabic translation of the words the base is Al-Qaeda. And like Al-Qaeda, the base also believes violence is the only option to achieve their goals. They spend 80% of these recordings discussing guns and the collapse of America. And yet, for all the propaganda the base posts about being militaristic and armed, they're pretty paranoid. You contacted us, okay? That's true. Not the other way around. Exactly. So you you agreed to submit yourself to this process. So now you're in the process. So if you're going to do it, do it. If you're not going to do it, if you have reservations about it, don't waste our time. There's a lot of talk about getting doxxed. That's when private information about someone is shared publicly on the internet intending harm. 
My main concern is is basically what defenses are being set up to prevent like a mass dox. Well, I mean, the first line of defense is the vetting process that we have. Um, of course, we, you know, our, our our security philosophy is essentially that the vetting never stops. I mean, we always need to be kind of monitoring, using common sense. There are other encrypted apps base members use for planning activities, sharing racist theories, and basic shit-talking, as they like to call it. These secret recordings were all made on wire. While keeping information secure and private, it provides protection for domestic terrorists to communicate freely. Yet, on these vetting calls with outsiders, they still worry about Antifa, a word for anti-fascist and leftist. The base demonizes them and targets them with violence. Geraldine, the base has been doxxed and infiltrated before. Yes, but because of their decentralized structure, it hasn't stopped them so far. Has the FBI ever, like, ever tried to get like someone in your group? I mean, the vetting really never stops, you know, so we're always kind of have our guard up. Uh, and it's always a potential threat, you know, because we are on the radar. We are the whole, the entire system is, is gunning for us from the, you know, from the journalists to the Jewish NGOs to the feds. To achieve deeper analysis of these recordings, we applied machine learning techniques. You've been listening to our findings. Here's another. Yeah, where they painted us as being uh, a terrorist organization planning attacks, which is not the case. Because of all they talk a lot about being targeted by the system, the police, government, and the media. In fact, the term targeted occurs in 45% of the recordings. The, the thing is this, though, we're not doing anything illegal. And the phrase, not doing anything illegal, shows up in 30% of the conversations. It's a network, and it's specifically to get people together for uh, survival and self-defense. That's it. I mean, there's nothing illegal about it in Russia or any other country. My name's Mike German. I'm a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. I previously served 16 years as an FBI special agent. And what I learned was there were a lot of people who, who believed in the ideology of white supremacy or some other far-right fascist ideologies. Um, but it was a small segment of people who were actually in, engaged in illegal activity and particularly violent activity. You often see these groups changing names very regularly to avoid association with the criminal activities of their previous colleagues. And you know, even within a phantom cell, there could be cells within that cell. German says by claiming to be leaderless and having small cells, it makes it possible for one group to be involved in their own criminal activity and for another group to be involved in different ones. This way, they're towing the line of illegality, making it possible for each cell to claim not to have any knowledge of the actions of other cells, should any criminal investigations or charges be raised. The base describes themselves as survivalists. That sounds like they're going to go out camping and have marshmallows. They're talking about the survival of the white race. Part of the way these groups organized to avoid the stigma associated with white supremacy is to try to present themselves in a way that appeals to a broader audience. Many militant groups believe, regardless of the ideology, is that their viewpoint will dominate once it's given the chance. And what needs to happen is some kind of cleansing war. 
once this cataclysmic event happens or this, this war starts, uh, all white people will join with them and they will be seen as the vanguard and the leaders of uh, the, the defense of white people and that will result in this utopian white society. Roman Wolf says the last step is to meet our local guy in person. Journalist Thorpe knew he was joining a group trying to set off a cataclysmic race war. The next step was an in-person meetup with a local member in Winnipeg. He did tell me that, you know, you're lucky because there is someone else in your area that is already with us. So you wouldn't have to build something from scratch. You would immediately have a comrade in arms. Did he have a name? Yes, he was going by Dave Arctorum. Um, was his pseudonym. So he suggests a park, which is like way out on the edge of Winnipeg. And I just felt uneasy about that. So I suggested a more centrally located park. Thorpe says he had to make careful considerations not to raise suspicions he worked at the Winnipeg Free Press. He's written about white supremacy before. So since his photo runs with his column, he shaved his facial hair and he decided to show up at the park without ID or a phone or a backup. I can't bring an audio recorder. What if he pats me down? He had no physical description of Dave, the base member he was about to meet in Whittier Park in Winnipeg at 8 p.m. on a weekday. Finally, someone does walk up to me. It's an individual who's about 5'10 in height. He said Dave had thick, dirty blonde hair, shaved close at the sides, long on top, a bushy beard, and a backpack. Pretty quickly, he tells me, uh, well, we're going to be working uh, quite close with one another from here on out. Um, So, you know, what if we just drop the pseudonyms and go by our first names? Thorpe agrees. You know, I put out my hand to shake his hand. I'm like, I'm Ryan. And he says, I'm Patrick. We kind of head out into some of the more secluded areas of the park so we can have more privacy talking. He tells me he's a combat engineer trained by the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, He talks about going to the United States to engage in paramilitary training. He talks about committing violence against anti-fascist activists. And he also talks about engaging in sabotage, where at one point in our conversation, there's a There's a rail line that runs parallel to the park, and he openly talks about derailing a train. Thorpe learned they were both the same age, 26. He heard unexpected revelations about Patrick's personal life. This was towards the end of our in-person meeting. It was like confessional. His relationship had fallen apart, and uh, he revealed that it was with uh, a black woman. He seemed embarrassed about this fact. And then he said that they had had a pregnancy scare towards the end of that relationship. And I'll I'll never forget this. He said, um, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I think I would like to be a father. The only problem is the kid would have only been half human. So I'm really trying to wrap my head around this. How does someone who is such a racist end up in a relationship with a black woman? It's certainly shocking. I mean, human beings are strange creatures with the ability to compartmentalize and to, you know, have cognitive dissonance and things like this. I'm uh, Megan Squire. I teach computer science at Elon University. And my research area is on uh, data science and data mining, 
with particular application on uh, far-right radical extremism. Megan Squire has collected a massive trove of information on far-right extremists from the internet. She collects data on sites where they share propaganda in plain sight, like Facebook or Telegram. So I had 10 different ideologies, about 2,000 different groups, about 700,000 different user accounts. The connections she finds helps track how often members of various hate groups cross over to a different group. For example, if you were in a white nationalist group, how likely is it that you would also be in a, I don't know, anti-Semitic group or a anti-Muslim group or something like that? What I did find was that, um, especially in some ideologies, the people tend to kind of just stick with what they know. One of the most uh, crossing over-ish, I guess, ideologies was the neo-Nazis. They tended to cross over more. And what I found was because their groups were so small, they tended to go into other groups, perhaps to recruit. What do you know about the base from your online work? And the first thing I noticed about that group was how similar it looked to some other groups like Adam Waffen. Their visual style was very similar. Adam Waffen Division began in 2015. It's another terroristic neo-Nazi organization that fetishizes violence and the collapse of civilization. The base came up in around 2018. Ali Winston is an independent investigative journalist. He's also tracking this group. Around the period of time when Adam Waffen Division's uh, whole motif, um, their skull masks, their very unique, edgy, hyper-stylized propaganda had become quite widely known. And online, the base's social media accounts openly aped that ascetic the idea that they would meet in small sort of cell-like groups, um, you know, four or five guys go out for shooting exercises. They definitely uh, swap platforms. They jump around, especially under duress. That usually happens in a very erratic, <laughs> unplanned kind of way. It's very reactive. There's a certain countercultural aspect to the neo-fascist revival. And, you know, you want to be edgy, you want to be extreme. This is kind of like what teenagers do. It's something that young men do, especially. And to be a militant neo-Nazi who wants to eliminate, you know, all blacks, Jews, Latinos, uh, LGBT folks. I mean, that's, frankly, is attractive to some people. Guns, knives, explosives, that was always part of their appeal. So both groups, Adam Waffen and the base, tend to have these meetups where they practice shooting. training, they might say, for the upcoming race war that they hope will happen. And both groups have noticed film these events and um, use the videos as propaganda, like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, who also produce that kind of propaganda, uh, showing off weapons and skill with weapons, and then um, sort of promoting the idea that we need to get together in, in small groups and train for this upcoming battle. Since its inception, Adam Waffen has been under scrutiny by journalists, anti-fascist groups, and law enforcement. With so many eyes watching, they keep switching online platforms. The base copies the strategy. If it's for propaganda, they can use their private channels to talk about where they were moving for propaganda. So let's say they were on Twitter. And then they get removed from there. They would go to their wire channel and be like, oh, guys, did you see we all got kicked off Twitter? Where should we go next to hassle people and put our propaganda? And someone will say, well, let's go to Telegram. And so they'll move over there. Then Adam Waffen, which had contempt for basically any other element of far-right extremists, posted an unexpected message online in 2018. 
One of the earliest images I remember seeing of the base was two individuals posing in flectarn camouflage, which is a pattern that Adam Waffen Division adopted as their own. Um, wearing the skull masks, one guy was holding an Adam Waffen flag, another one was holding a new flag with the three Iwas runes that came to signify the base. The significance of that photograph was we are alike. This would turn out to be the first of many significant alliances for the base. Winston says it was a turning point. Now Adam Waffen members could also be members of the base, and it sent a signal to other groups to consider joining as well. But if they get through, I mean, you can send as many guys as, as, as you want. We, we'd love to have them. You know, that's, that's great. It's not, it's not an issue. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's up to you. you know? and, I mean, that's what happened with the ecologist. You know, so as Nazaro anticipated, he was more yeah, than willing to recruit from his like-minded extremist friends and members of his own acceleration group, Green Brigade. I'm looking for just an alliance, just mutual respect from each groups. Um, if it's possible to work together, that's something I could be interested in. We'd love to have them. You know, that's that's great. It's not that's not an issue. It's, I mean, it's not, it's it's up to you. You know, and, and I mean, not everyone may 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 make the cut either. You know, so I I wouldn't want you to be offended by that either. You know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the guys, but, but the guys, yeah. So the guys who are, you know, who, who are, who do make it, you know, or can, can, can come in and, and, like I said, participate in the network. I mean, the, the other guys who didn't make it or your larger organization can still benefit uh, indirectly from the knowledge that the guys who are in the base get. They, they require knowledge uh, and, and they can impart that on the rest of the Green Brigade. At the end of this vetting call, they discuss whether the leader of the Green Brigade should be allowed in. What do you think? I don't know, man. My take is pretty much similar to everyone else's. I think he's okay. I mean, uh, yeah, what he said was, I don't know, pretty uh, unusual. But, uh, yeah, it was probably just just him being nervous or trying to impress us. I don't know. He knows what he's doing enough to find some pretty, like, decent guys that have potential. So that's great, you know, for us. His willingness to recruit for the base gets the ecologist a green light. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they definitely have seemed like they have a pretty hardcore uh, militant mindset right right off the bat. So so I guess it's a th- it thumbs up all around as far as, you know, we'll let him in and I'll, I'll explain to him that, you know, that that's how we want to kind of do it. Just keep it a little bit low key as far as our cooperation right now. We identified nine additional neo-Nazi group alliances with the base on these recordings. I think this was the last one for a couple of days. <laughs> we, then we, we only have... Um, we have a guy in Sweden on Saturday. We have a guy in Wisconsin on uh, Friday. Well, another guy in, in, uh, in Arizona who has applied. He's a Marine. He's active duty. So he, he looks like he might have some potential. Often the next step after vetting calls are face-to-face meetups. Once admitted, members are invited to practice drills in small groups with firearms, where they make more propaganda to distribute online. This was important work to Patrick, the base member who Canadian reporter Ryan Thorpe met in the park. At one point, he told me that he had been going down to engage in paramilitary training in the United States and that on one occasion he had been turned away at the border and he was specifically disappointed about this because he said Norman Spear, Roman Wolf, was going to present him with a base flag at this uh, paramilitary training event. Did uh, Patrick talk to you about wanting to do any kind of military training together? Absolutely, yeah. No, that was very quickly. He wanted to to begin paramilitary training in Manitoba. 
he had talked about going to a national park and going deep into the bush and potentially shooting there. At this point, Thorpe knew he wasn't willing to risk going into the woods with an armed base member. He also had enough material to publish his story. Oh, it blew up. It, it blew up. I mean, it. I knew it was going to be a big story, but I didn't think it was going to be as big as it became. We identified him as Master Corporal Patrick Matthews of the Canadian Armed Forces. Hours later, the RCMP raids his home in Beaujolais, takes him into custody, and seizes his firearms, and then releases him without charge, and then he disappears. The only clue left behind? Matthews' abandoned red truck. Holy shit, no one knows where this guy is. In our next episode of Sounds Like Hate, find out where Fugitive Master Corporal Patrick Matthews is hiding, and what happens when the FBI and ATF visit a 17-year-old Michigan base member. We do also have law enforcement that is kind of on the periphery, you know, waiting for us to fuck up somehow. You know, waiting for us to incriminate ourselves, you know, giving them enough rope to hang us with. These are complicated stories about people who hold on to false histories and terroristic ideologies and draw boundaries that are skin deep. If you or anyone you know has experienced a hate incident or crime, please contact the appropriate local authorities or elected official. You can also document what happened at splcenter.org report hate. This is Sounds Like Hate, an independent audio documentary brought to you by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Additional funding comes from the Ring Foundation. Produced by Until 20 Productions. I'm Jamila Paxima. And I'm Geraldine Moriba. Remember to subscribe to find out when new episodes are released. Please rate and review. It really helps. And thanks for listening.